You are listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. In the 1950s and 60s, psychoanalysis was all the rage. It was cool to be on the couch. It was a status symbol of wealth and celebrity. What happened? Did the era of quick fixes and polypharmacy make it all irrelevant? Can it survive? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Larry Kaskill. Joining me today is Dr. David Terman, Director of the Chicago Institute for Psychoanalysis. Dr. Terman is extremely well-published and has been a practicing psychiatrist for 43 years. Welcome to the show, Dr. Terman. Thank you, Dr. Kaskill. So what did happen? What's happened from the 50s and 60s to 2007 that has made psychoanalysis less popular? I think there have been a number of uh, factors that have made it less popular. One of them, I think, has been the advent of psychopharmacology and of effective medications to help treat the sufferings of many people, Uh, antidepressants, anti-anxiety medications, better and better such medications, uh, I think, have helped people and have led to the feeling that somehow one needn't have a prolonged exploration of one's inner life. And in fact, one can expect relief from symptomatic problems almost right away. And so I think that's one That's one element. I'd like to attack that because you can get immediate relief of symptoms as you can uh, stop a wound from bleeding if you put a pressure bandage on it or a nice Band-Aid. But have you done any significant change in the person's underlying behavior or understanding. And, and as you know, these drugs don't last forever. There's a nice little honeymoon period, and six months later, they're, they're acting out again and going back to their same old repetition compulsion, if you will. So, you know, it sounds to me like you're saying, yeah, these drugs are great. They're actually helping people. But I'm curious if you really think that they're as good as they say they are. Oh, uh, I, I think you're quite right. They're not as good as they say they are. However, you, you, your question was about what are some of the cultural changes sure. that, that have led to people turning away from longer-term, more intensive treatment. And I think the image or the fantasy of a quick amelioration of their difficulties, I think, is one of the things. And further, that that there's relatively little to be learned or understood from a, a, a a process, a, a longer process of self-investigation and entering into a relationship with another person, which is can be very, very difficult and very fraught for people. Relationships are quite difficult, yes. quite complicated. Yes. Why indeed. is that? It's all my mother's fault. <laughs> well... <laughs> Uh, uh, relationships are difficult, and and of course, it, it your mother, I'm sure, did the best she possibly could. That's what she says. Well, well she she's probably right. Uh, you know, there I... are there are there are very few villains in the piece. It's it's often um, people do the best they can, and in the process of trying to do the best they can, can often do dreadful damage. Parents always say, you know, we did the best we could, but did they really? I mean, were they really conscious and present in the situation when they were raising kids? Say. 40 years ago? Were they really focused on the children's needs? Uh, It seems like uh, 40 years ago, kids were, you know, just kind of to be seen but not heard from. The way we parent these days is dramatically different. Our, Our children come first before anything else. We will never miss a tennis match or anything for fear that they will end up in therapy. So when our parents say we did the best we could, but I don't think they did such a great job. I don't. I think they could have done better. Well, I, I'm hesitant to indict any parent or any parental gen, generation. 
I think uh, we're going to see how well we have done uh, <laughs> in in this generation when 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 our children grow up. I'm actually saving it for a trust fund just in case I screwed up my kids. I've put some money aside for their therapy. Well, good idea because in in spite of the best intentions that any of us has, um, it, it 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 it's it's in part a crapshoot. It it, it 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 in part depends on the meshing of the child's developmental needs and the parent's character. And parents do the best they can with their characters. Uh, sometimes, it, again, it can be truly dreadful uh, what, what, what they do given the nature of the child's developmental needs. For example, a kind of a depressive parent of one gender or another, uh, when confronted with a very lively, bouncy boy or girl, may always be responding by trying to damp the child down, being overwhelmed by the child and not really liking the bounciness very much. And so the child gradually, say, theoretically uh, damps him or herself down and grows up kind of depressed and feeling like there's not a lot of energy and that whatever his or her own inclinations are are not very interesting or very worthwhile and comes to see us. Now, the, you Did know, you watch the video of my childhood? <laughs> the, the, I, I thought I was so special that, well, that my uh, parents uh, couldn't handle my emotional spectrum and that the words of don't get carried away, don't get carried away. And thus, I, I did retreat into a very narrow spectrum of, of feeling. Right, right. Well, so I guess uh, it's pretty common. It, it, it is pretty common. And so is, so is the converse. That is where you have, say, a phleg- more phlegmatic child and the parent is uh, bouncing off the walls in various ways, very energetic, and uh, repeatedly traumatizes the child because the child can't deal with the stimulation that the parent is, is bringing. And again, none of this is malevolent. None of this is... is uh, uh, motivated, say, oh, I'm going to find a way to make this child miserable and to really, really interfere with he, who he or she is. But it happens because of the character. It seems to me that psychoanalysis likes to live in the past, that to understand where you are today, you have to kind of dissect and go back and unearth the scab, if you will. And last night, just uh, surreptitiously, I attended with a friend a landmark forum meeting you ever you ever heard of that? No, the Landmark the, Forum. No, it's a that? it's an educational group that does a three day intensive therapy. It's it's a recreation of Est. Oh, oh. So now it's called Landmark. Oh. And their whole premise is that you have to let go of the past, completely unburden yourself completely, and get rid of all your negative thinking, everything you've ever thought before, and just let it go. And then you are what they call you you've popped, and you no longer see the world the same way anymore. And so I attended this last night with my friend and it was like it was like being in uh, Jonestown. Mm-hmm. Um, exactly. and uh, exactly. I exactly. you know I didn't want to go back when they offered me water because exactly. I was afraid to drink the Kool-Aid. Exactly. But but yet, you know, I'm curious if there's ever been a study looking at the effect of short-term therapy, which I would say this is, 3-day therapy versus 15-year therapy of psychoanalysis. I know it was a long question, but uh, 
there it is. Well, yeah, the, yes, there are. There aren't studies comparing short-term therapy with long-term therapy, but there are studies of various kinds of short-term therapy and uh, various focused kinds of short-term therapy. In fact, there was a, uh, a study published recently, I think in February, in the American Journal of Psychiatry that uh, uh, examined short-term therapy for panic disorder uh, versus a, a more supportive general therapy. And it was surprisingly extremely effective for the panic disorder. It was a very, very powerful study. So, And, and there are attempts at short-term adaptations of psychoanalytic uh, treatment, which seem to be useful, uh, seem to be useful in reducing the symptoms and have some, have some staying power for, uh, in, in the follow-up for s- several years. In terms of the, the sort of experience that you describe in, in the landmark therapy, it is, as you said, it's a, a cultish, uh, religious, uh, brainwashing kind of experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, one can't just do that if you, you because you you don't have access to the all the that kind of experience. So you can't just let it go because you don't have the access to it in the first place. And it's some kind of mass hypnotic suggestion. Uh, Rian, you're quite right that that can lead to uh, any kind of untoward activity. Well, we've we've free associated a lot here today. Kind of wrap things up for us, what you see for the future of psychoanalysis. Is it going to survive, and what you think will help it survive? Of course, I, I think it will survive. I, th- I think it's one of the most essential endeavors in human culture. Uh, why? Because this is a unique window onto our own inner beings. It's a unique window into human psychology. There is nothing to compare with it, nothing to compare with the depth or intensity of a psychoanalytic uh, exploration. Drugs don't do it. PET scans don't do it. It's interesting to know about some of the hardware, if you will, on which this software uh, lives, but it's essential for us to have this in-depth understanding of the human psyche, of the human psychology. So I think we need it. I think we have to have it. I think we'll continue to need it, uh, and it, and it will be essential. Will it be popular and widespread? I don't know. I think its applications its applications are already very, very popular. I think that it will always be a kind of basic science of psychology, a basic science that we will need to continue to explore and which will inform everything we do. I am a, a general internist, which means I'm a mostly a psychiatrist. Eighty <laughs> percent of my practice is depression, anxiety, and or somatization disorders. I know that to be an analyst, a psychiatrist has to go through his own analysis, Mm -hmm. which makes him a better analyst. Mm -hmm. Do you think that physicians would be better physicians if they went through either an entire analysis or a partial analysis or at least uh, looked into what analysis is? Would it make them a better physician? Oh, without question. I think it would make them a better physician. It's interesting that you raise that because I think that... um, the whole uh, we we used to have liaison psychiatry in which psychiatrists went and and discussed uh, how what patients were feeling and what the meanings of their illness and their symptoms were, uh, and I, I don't think that happens very much anymore. But uh, there was an article I think it was in Cranes in which uh, doctors were reprimanded for trying to make connections with their patients by talking about themselves, and they talked about themselves so much that right. they obscured the patients. It was in yesterday's New York Times. Was in yesterday's yeah, New York chat, Times. Chatty doctors sometimes forget patients. Right, right. Okay. 
Actually, it was in the June 26th New York Times. Times. Okay. Uh, there was a study that says chatty doctors sometimes forget yeah. patients right. that building rapport is seen going off track. Right. And and, and, and that's that's precisely right. And it, it was very interesting to read that. And I, I think partly it's a, a result of the filtering down of uh, misconception about what it takes to be empathic with, with, with another person. And that is that you try to share some of, of what that person is feeling and show them that you feel it too. Uh, it's a filtering down of that and an oversimplification and a misuse of it. But uh, such things happen frequently, and I think one way to uh, be able to understand and deal with, with patients and your interactions and what they're feeling is to know yourself. So I think analysis would be very, very useful for, for many, many physicians. Unfortunately, very few have it. You mentioned know yourself. Um, I'm pretty sure that comes from the Oracle of Delphi. Well, I think it came from Socrates, right? Okay. So yeah. I, I know it was uh, written over the oracle's doorway. Okay. Um, know thyself. Right. So what happens if you don't know yourself? I mean, what is so great about knowing yourself? They say the uh, the unexamined life is not worth living. Yes. Well, on that note, I'd like to thank you very much for coming into the studio. Our guest has been Dr. David Terman, the director of the Institute of Psychoanalysis in Chicago. I'm Dr. Larry Caskell, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. And thank you for listening. 